So I'm really excited to share the conversation we had today with Jessica Federer, who brings so many different kinds of experience to her new role as managing partner of Supernode Ventures, which has an explicit focus on investing in women's health. She's been in corporate. She worked at Bayer. She helped them create their digital health strategy. She's worked for the government. She understands regulatory. So she really is whatever you call it, a triple, quadruple threat in terms of someone who has the skills and wherewithal to help move things forward. Well, my favorite part of learning what she does is learning that she is not focused on little small diseases, but rather on the big picture. This is a woman who thinks big. And that to me is incredible. We're talking about cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, and then also smaller subjects, which are not small like menopause. So I think that was super interesting to learn. Yeah. And just, it's so encouraging. We always talk about this and hopeful and helpful that we're starting to look at women's health more appropriately, not as an individual condition, but something that could affect all the different aspects of a woman's life. One last thing, we're often speaking to investors or people who are on the financial side of healthcare. She really hit a nerve with me when she said she's super early with pre-seed and with Series A investing. So she's really seeing a vision early, early on in a company's uh, formation and mission. So let's talk to Jessica. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirm. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. So here's today's hot flash. 80% of Americans with autoimmune disease are women. Two thirds of Americans with Alzheimer's disease are women. We are so excited to have our guest today, Jessica Federer, who is currently the managing partner of Supernode Ventures, but she's a Jack or Jill of all trades. She's been chief digital officer at Bear. She has served on boards. She's been in many, many different roles. And so we're happy to have her because she brings such a broad and unique perspective. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are delighted to have you. So let's start with the easy one. How did you get here? Wind up with the focus you have now. And we love you as a result to tell us a little bit also about Supernode and what the focus is. Perfect. So Supernode is a VC based in New York, and we are investing in early stage healthcare companies with a focus on women. So this is a women's health focus, and we're doing as early as we can for investments pre-seed, seed, and series A. Now, my background and how I got here is really following the data. So back before we had digital health, there was biostats and epidemiology and <laughs> Us public health nerds really dug in and following that data evolution is what brought me to, through all of my roles, actually, my career evolved with the evolution of how we use data and how technology has empowered us to be more precise in finding the signal through the noise. So I started out in public health 
working for the government, for HHS, and then went and did my master's in public health and was part of the team that developed the 30-day all-cause heart failure readmission rate, which is everybody in the outcomes world knows, and then went from working for the government to working with the government. So Mm -hmm. I joined Bayer in regulatory affairs and That was really the best place to join a pharma company if you're going to go to the dark side, which I recommend. Um, (laughs) I spent some time in the dark side myself and work a lot with the dark side. (laughs) So in regulatory, you see the full journey of any new product from the very beginning stages through the toxicology studies, through phase one, two, three, to when the asset is taken off the market, if it's taken off the market. And it's all about the data to show a drug is safe and it works. And so as a data nerd, I love that. And then of course, our field evolved and you needed data to show that a drug was worth paying for. So all the pharma companies started market access teams. So I raised my hand and moved over to Germany and helped start the market access team for Bayer. And, you know, just sort of, you follow the evolution of how data is used and my career evolved with that. So of course, before I bore you with a whole bunch of German Bayer world, jumping to my last role at Bayer, I was the chief digital officer of Bayer, which was the second chief digital officer in the pharma space. And I led the digital transformation across pharma, consumer care, crop science, and animal health. And that was really looking at how do you take a 150-year-old company and bring it up to where we are today. So there's a lot of the unsexy stuff, the processes, the platforms, the harmonizations. But then there was a lot of the really sexy stuff, which once you get your data cleaned up and out of silos and integrated, and you know what you have, you can do some of the cool things like moving towards digital farming where you're selling crop yield guarantees instead of individual products or in healthcare, of course, selling outcomes, lines of vision gained instead of injections. That was really an exciting space. And I promised the board I would stay through the Monsanto acquisition, which I did. So after we acquired Monsanto, I moved back to the U.S. and joined a VC group in Boston, focused very much on clinical trial tech, a lot more of the development side. And then I started to get to to know the women's health space a lot more. At Bayer, we'd always been in women's health as well. It's just such a personal passion. And I think the field is finally ready for more investment in women's health. It's always been necessary, but the capital wasn't there. So recently I moved to Supernode Ventures, which was founded by the brilliant and amazing world, Toby. And we kicked off as focus on women's health. And it's just been remarkable because as you know, and you say on your podcast so many times, this field is really underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. So because women weren't required to be included in NIH studies till 1993, only 30 years ago, right. there's a huge gap from that data yeah. gap. There's a huge lack of innovation that would have come had we had that knowledge earlier. And now we're seeing it. And now it's making amazing companies. And of course, you see what's happening in the market right now. This is a great time to invest in new businesses. So right. I said everyone. to my kids, I wanted when I've been in this field so long that they said, now it's hip, like, but yeah. you're not hip. I said, well, I stayed in long <laughs> enough until it became hip. But I, I have to I laugh. Also, you're well, the OG, you're, Rachel. You're yeah, the you're, you're so hip I'm, and data is sexy. This is quite I'm the conversation. years old then in women's health years. <laughs> but I did want to mention, you had said something really interesting, and then I'm going to let you guys geek out on women's health conditions, which is really understanding how a drug goes through a process. I felt like having sat through all the hearings for Addy, which was, as you both know, but for our audience, product that was approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder, 
you go to the hearings, you hear the patients, you hear the companies, and this process that you think is so magical, you start to see how the sausage is made. Sometimes that's comforting, sometimes it's terrifying, but it really was quite an eye-opening experience because as you said, absolutely, first we want to make it safe. That's what we do in the early phases. Then we want to make sure it works. That's also important. And that's no longer good enough because so many of these drugs with all the money that's been spent to develop them need to make a return and you need someone to cover them. So as you're entering women's health, you've been in women's health for a long time, but as you're entering now as an investor, what are some of the areas of focus? Because I always love to match those up with the stuff that Alyssa sees walk through her office door? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because the definition of women's health really varies depending on who you talk to. We take the NIH definition, which is anything that differently or disproportionately impacts women. And of course, we go beyond the reproductive field, which most fertility and menopause, they're very, very important investment areas, but we want to look holistically across the whole woman in her whole life. So that includes things like autoimmune disease, which is 80% women in the U.S., and brain health, where two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. are women, and GI, and osteoporosis. And so there's so many conditions where women really are differently or disproportionately impacted, even cardiovascular disease, where women are 50% more likely to die in the year after a heart attack. So we're looking across that broad continuum of health and wellness. And is it devices and pharmaceuticals and consumer as well? Well, I always say you want to invest in what you know, and what I know is really digital health and the data. So, and my partner, Laurel, had really great track record investing in technology companies. So we've really combined that and have a focus more on the digital health. That being said, if there's other solutions that have a heavy data or digital component that will move the field forward and empower and, and support and advance women's health, we're very interested. I'm curious because I think in my career of almost 30 years as a clinician, what has truly exploded is the menopause space. Yes. And of course, menopause is nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning of time. But I'm just curious if you feel like, is this getting saturated yet? What do you think about all of the platforms that are actually maybe focused on hormones or focused on supplements or focused on any of the other ailments that may be causing suffering needlessly, actually? And then second part of my question is, you've clearly lived through the WHI information and then the reversal of it all. And we can go through what that is for our audience momentarily. But I'm just so curious on your take on that and whether it's going to pretty much revamp the way pharmaceutical companies or the companies you're investing in are now uh, making their focuses. Brilliant questions. I love it. So to the first one, it is far from saturated. This is the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that now people know what menopause is and are hearing about it, it means we're scratching the surface of starting to understand the systemic effects that just to understand the, the progression of women's health and the, that acceptance in society. And then the research that's necessary to understand what happens when your hormone levels are changing and, and what does that mean to every part of your body? So I think we are not even scratching the surface. And so the next I think you probably talked to Carol Lee at the, the Women's Health Research Institute, and she's really, this year, particularly on the 30th anniversary, she's challenging us all saying, 
what can we do in the next three years, not the next 30? And it's been 30 years since women were required to be included in NIH-funded research, but we, we don't have another 30 years to wait. What can we do in the next three? Can we take a diagnosis of endometriosis from 10 years to 10 days? Yes, we can. We can use a genetic test. You know, Can we take ovarian cancer from being a diagnosis that requires the removal of an ovary and a fallopian tube to something that's non-invasive? What are the things we can do in three years right. that make a difference now? And the piece that's really, I think, frustrating, but also motivating is that we can't keep waiting on the same stakeholders that have not made the changes we needed for the last 30 years. If we're going to do something different, we as women have to do it differently. And that's why we're investing in women's health. Because if you look around, women are 2% of GPs, 2%. And that's probably why you have 1% of life science funding going into women's health. Until we bring more women into being LPs and GPs, and being investors and being those deploying capital, we're not going to see the change in the market at the speed that we need it without that engagement at all levels. Yeah. I would say the corollary to follow the data is follow the money and make sure <laughs> the money is following the data because exactly. we're now seeing the you know, almost daily growth of new funds focused on women's health or focused on female founders or diverse founders. So we're having a lot more conversation, which is amazing. And one of the things I'm concerned about that I've been hearing lately, speaking to folks who are pitching their businesses and trying to raise money is you'll hear from a VC in response to some aspect of menopause. And for those who have been listening to our show for a long time, it is not one thing. It is not 10 things. It's 37, 54, 196 <laughs> things. So, but what we've been hearing is investors saying, oh, I looked at a menopause company, you know, <laughs> so I don't need to look at a menopause. Oh, okay. We're good. It's just crazy. So one of the things I think we also have to work against is this sort of belief, this narrative that we've arrived, so there's nothing to worry about anymore. There's still a ton of work to be done. And I want to circle back on some of the particular diseases that you mentioned that you're focused on. So Alyssa, take ovarian cancer, take PCOS, take endometriosis. I mean, well, look, all of these patients suffer. Yeah, I see people with these things day in, day out. But when you really think about broadly, what, in my opinion, needs to really be focused on, the obesity crisis, because that's really the root of many causes of heart disease or many other types of diabetes, for example. Obesity is certainly a heightened risk for that. So I think that's super important. And that affects both women and men, but it specifically seems to really affect women during their perimenopause and menopause journey. Number two, heart disease. We forget that cardiovascular disease is not a man's disease. It was always extrapolated just to consider women little men when they reviewed studies. And that's just not the case. We have totally different receptors for different hormones and different amounts and whatnot. My thought though, is that we're going to find that precision medicine with genetics testing and genetics propensities become all important. This is my opinion, but I really think that there's a lot of literature to support this. And we'll be able to really direct care, management, follow-up, screening, prevention to people based on their genetic makeup. And I think that's unbelievable. 
but it does take time. I'm research when people do a 12 week study or a six month study, it seems kind of short. So if you want to get 10 years of data, you have to be patient for it. And then there's always the big turnarounds that sometimes occur as it did with that menopause study. Yeah. I love, this is the holy grail, right? To have that personalized medicine, precision medicine approach. Unfortunately, the pragmatist in me says, I've been going to damn precision medicine conferences for decades now, and we're we're no closer. So, and then looking at how our regulatory process currently approves things, there's a dose. Here's depending on all these factors, here's the adjusted dosage. So we're not quite set up for precision medicine as a system yet. So we can find a small, lucky few that can go to specialized care and have every aspect of their body analyzed and really actually access precision medicine because they can afford it. That's still a dream for most people. Will Um, you share for people who are listening when you use the expression precision medicine? Because we know, especially in business and in women's health, we sometimes use the same terms, but we don't necessarily mean the same thing. Yeah. So it's that idea that before just prescribing you autoimmune drug or a chemotherapy drug or any treatment, that we first look deeply at how your own body would respond to that. So it's the whole multiomics. And now that whole multiomics space is evolving rapidly, which will help. But it's not just your genome. It's how do you metabolize things? It's how are the cells working? It's all the dynamics of your body and how you respond to things. And I think we still don't yet know what we don't know in this space. So it's almost akin to brain health. We still don't understand so much. And the little we do know makes us feel empowered and a little dangerous, but there's still so much more we don't understand. And so I think what's exciting in the going back to the nerdy data field and why data is so sexy, the promise is that at some point the data becomes more signal than noise. So right now we gather all this data. We can have your genome and your microbiome and all of your health records and all your pharmacy records and all your scans and your labs. And you could have all this data, but it's a pain to make any sense of that. And it's almost clinically impossible to then use that for a care decision. So at some point technology is, and we're very close to this, Technology is going to be able to have enough of a pattern recognition or have enough of a training to be able to start to make some useful prescriptions for us out of that in a way that regulators and healthcare providers and their insurance companies are going to be comfortable with. So there's so many factors at play in changing care decisions. But it actually has already come to play over the years and gradually. But let's just take, for example, the BRCA gene, the breast cancer sequences that get checked for. We know that we can direct screening in a different way to people who carry this gene and avoid unnecessary testing and screening to people who don't. So that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's where I'm hoping to see the future go. Or the gene Uh, therapies that are now coming to the market. You know, right now it is created for each individual person. So the cost is quite high, but they work because they were developed for each individual person. Yeah. What's your thought on the association when some of us physicians also go to the dark side? What's your feeling about that mix of traditional medicine going over to the pharma side? And the combination of that, to build on that question, with digital health solutions. Yeah. Oh, all right. Some small question that just maybe <laughs> spend 30 seconds describing this. This is this why you two are amazing. Massive. 
(laughs) I shouldn't call it the dark side because I love the industry that puts all of their efforts into curing disease and helping people, right? So the pharma industry, for all the joking and teasing, we trust it and it works. We take Mm -hmm. medicines and we see what happens. And there's no other place where I look at the timelines that we have in that industry. You're following an asset for 10 years. So first you're getting all the science. Then you have the required toxicology studies. Then you have the required first in man, which is still mostly first in man, but we'll get to that later. Then you've got your phase two, then your phase three, then hopefully your regulatory approval and your phase four, and then all of the additional indications of other ways that medicine can be used in addition to the first thing it was approved to be used for. So you've got a company investing billions of dollars over such a long time. And it's really the process, that very tightly regulated controlled process that takes a molecule through 10 years of that cycle to get to your medicine cabinet. And that process is really so important, but that 10 years is what we need to change and what we need to update. And that's the piece where together with regulators and some more innovative companies, we're starting to challenge what is possible. And of course, gratefully during the pandemic, we saw how fast we actually can move if all the stakeholders are on the same page. So I'm very hopeful that as we talked about the technology the vast amounts of data and the regulatory policies are starting to align in a way that means, again, during our lifetime, we're going to see some really exciting and meaningful developments that hopefully we'll get to benefit from. Is there one particular area of women's health, I should say, or medicine that you find the most scintillating, the most important, the most urgent? Because obviously you've got a lot of funds in your portfolio there. That's such a great question. I think anything that is more holistic is very exciting because as women, we're not just, oh, hey, here's our ovaries, here's our brains, here's our immune system, here's our thyroid, here's our skin. We look at everything in silos. And for all of us, not just women, but for all of us, all of those things are integrated, but our health system has divvied them up into separate silos. And so I find a particular amount of promise in solutions that aren't just a point solution for one specific thing, but have the opportunity to look at a human as a human. That's a huge thing to ask, right? Because innovators do one thing, but at some level we have to see what is that integrator? What brings all those puzzle pieces together in a way that our health system can make sense of it so that all of those individual solutions paint a meaningful, holistic picture so that we're not leaving each individual, in this case, each woman alone to figure out, okay, where do I go for brain health? Where do I go for skin health? Where do I go for thyroid? Where do I go? Because that's too much to ask of anyone to be able to figure out all of those different silos. Well, we're encouraged just even in the time, the 18 months that we've been doing this podcast, how the narrative has shifted so much from you have a problem, here's a product for you. And looking at her across the Mm -hmm. range of her total sexual and reproductive life, like the hormones that have an impact in pregnancy, the response might be different than what you have in menopause, but there are some forms of pattern recognition. And I think if we can get to the point, and I know this is one of the things I always admire about Alyssa when she talks about how she counsels patients is she does look at them as a person, as a human being, and not just a person who might have 
pain for one reason or another. But the other thing that I think is so interesting about all this is it really is hard. We talk about this in menopause. You can't be a mental health expert for the anxiety and you can't be an obesity expert and be a hot flash expert to treat these things all under one roof or under one therapeutic area is a challenge. It's the reality of how complex these things are. And it's, again, how you said, or how our system is set up. But one of the positive things that I saw coming from COVID is this bigger recognition that we, he, they were full people. So for instance, when we talk about menopause and lost work days, we never before talked about menopause in the context of the financial impact it could have on the woman as the breadwinner, as a contributor to the family finances, as her ability to his or her ability also to take care of the family. And now COVID has required us to do that because turns out without childcare, you can't be a worker, a provider and a childcare person unless you're an octopus and have eight arms. So I feel energized by the fact that we're making progress in how we look at women's health much more broadly. And I, just one I, point to your have it all under yeah. one roof. I recently was talking with someone from Alaska and you'll have to have some of your viewers check this, but apparently in Alaska, the community health centers do have all the different specialties literally under one roof. And it's the only state in the US where you can get that, which is just fascinating to me that depending on, again, one of the things that's fascinating about our non-health system in the US, if you live in Alaska, <laughs> you could have all of those specialties under one roof. It just, you might have to travel for two days to get to your local community. Yeah, and there clearly are <laughs> leading edge institutions where you yes. can get an entire body oh, workup, but this is paid for by yeah. the state though. Yeah. I'm curious of your thought on telehealth, the whole process of telehealth, because I'm sure you're involved with this, whether it's peripherally or directly and whether there's data, sexy data to allow us to think that it's actually really helping patient care, or is it just helping with access or both? And is it actually causing more visits to be necessary because everything has to be done twice or three times, once remotely, and then twice in office? I'm curious if this has brushed by you in any way. Well, I'm going to turn that back on you, Dr. Dweck. What do you yeah. think? You're the doctor seeing these patients and you're probably doing telehealth visits. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm going to say that number one, I have literally done patient visits while they are sitting in a meeting. Mm -hmm. I have done patient visits while they are sitting in the bathroom. <laughs> so to me, telehealth is great because it does provide access. You get instant advice and care, but and I don't think I'm old fashioned. I still think there's an art to putting your hands on and actually seeing somebody's face and doing an exam and getting a really thorough history without the distractions of what the background might be. Of but them being it, in but, a meeting while you're trying yes. to get their medical history. But I think that it's been great, but it's still kind of in its infancy. And I'm sure that there are many, many startups who are coming to you for funding that involves telehealth or involves telehealth with then a solution that they offer for the problem that somebody came to their telehealth platform for. Yes. And with a lot of these solutions, it's helpful to really look at what's the value that they're truly bringing to the system. So a lot of the early telehealth companies had valuations that if you looked at it critically, there's no way they could deliver enough value to the system. They're not replacing right. the doctor. They're not changing. You know, like some of these things just didn't make sense. And of course, now you're seeing the corrections in the market. I think my opinion is very close to yours, Dr. Dweck, that it has a role to play in decentralizing care and making care more accessible. 
So whether you're in a rural part of the country, or maybe you're in an institution in prison or in a nursing home that doesn't have access to the specialist, telehealth can play a really important access role. But it alone is not a solution. It's an enabler. And often it's helpful to think of anything digital as an enabler. It's not the end of it in and of itself. It's enabling something else. And so I like solutions that break down barriers, that make things more accessible, that make things more inclusive, that, that make it easier for people. And to some extent, telehealth checks a lot of those boxes. It's how then do we integrate that with maybe the home visit or the in-person visit and the delivery of the medication or meals or whatever else is necessary to have that holistic picture covered for care. And of course, this all sounds pie in the sky in the US because most people have very little access to care anyway. But when Mm -hmm. I was living in Germany for a decade, I remember the doctor would do home visits and then she would call to see how you're feeling later. And, you know, there's this just a whole other approach to medicine that felt so foreign. And yet is really something that if countries like Germany and Korea can implement that type of public health approach after the war and have these systems that actually function quite well, there's no reason the U.S. can't do it except political will. Well, we are so excited to see what you and Supernode Ventures brings forth in terms of new and better solutions. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I know every time I finish one of these conversations, I think to myself, wow, I'm glad this person, I'm glad Jessica's on this team focused on the same (laughs) stuff because I do like to be hopeful. And I think we have a lot of brilliant people who really care about this and are going to make a difference. Hopefully, as you said, not in 30 years, but in three years. And I have to thank you both. I mean, Dr. Dweck, in addition to treating your patients, you're also raising awareness on so many different causes. We uh, sure are trying. We it's, are trying. <laughs> it's a gift. It's a mission. It's incredible. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your experience and your expertise. And Rachel, you are the OG in this space. And it's such a pleasure to see your leadership and your relationships that have cultivated so many businesses and actually meaningful benefits for people. Well, that is so nice of you to say. I'm just going to call it quits for the week because no no (laughs) one's ever going to say anything that nice to me. So just in terms of a few logistics, we have a pretty big inventory. You can expect this to come out in four to six weeks. We will let you know, hopefully the Monday or Tuesday before the episode drops on a Thursday. We will provide you with the assets, the social media assets, which we will share all over the place. Hope you will too. And we're just really excited. Thank you for taking the time on a Monday night. Oh my night. God, yes, it's the end of been a day. pleasure. Great to Thank have you, ladies. You bet. Thank Thanks you. so much, Jessica. I'll Take see you. So I'm going to reach out about other stuff soon. Yes, please. Anytime. Sounds Bye-bye. good. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business. 